You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. Hi, I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Freaky. Each season, we deep dive into a select community to hear their tales in hopes that we may shed some new light of understanding in that given corner of the world. In this season of Mend, we start digging in our own backyards. Beneath the stereotypes and sensationalized portrayals of criminals, greed, and environmental destruction, to the origins of Humboldt County's marijuana culture, the backs of the landers, the activists, the families, the farmers, and the medicine makers. In a landscape that is rapidly shifting, we go back to the beginning to see where we started, where we've come thus far, and hopefully shed some light on the path that's yet to come. So join us. Pull up a chair, pour a glass, and listen. In this episode, we interview a longtime Southern Humboldt resident and activist who tells us of one of the origin stories of marijuana in Humboldt County as it relates to the people of the Back to the Land movement of the 1970s. We learned how this plant helped provide opportunities for activists at home and abroad and supported the building of a solid, thriving community. We reflect on the impacts of marijuana's progression through Humboldt's community over the years and discuss the frustrations and laments of its current path. Now there is one brief moment in the beginning of this when Roby's answer overlaps the end of Amy's question. I promise it is the only technical mishap in this episode. We hope you enjoy this glimpse into the life of an activist before marijuana took over the Humboldt scene. So we are honored to have um, our guest tonight, Roby, come and join us. And so, Roby, we have been interviewing people who are veterans, so to speak, of the, um, the marijuana culture um, here in Humboldt County. And by veterans, we're saying people that have put at least a decade, right, of their life and time into, have been in- involved in this world in some some form for, a, you know, about 10 years or, or more. And so we would just love to, um, if you could share yes. with us a little bit about um, your have, role inside uh, of this world. Not been involved um, in your involvement. Recently, but uh, originally in the 70s when I moved here, There was a little bit of growing, um, mainly for people who enjoyed using the herb, and then there always seemed to be a little extra, so it started uh, getting taken down to the city for friends and things like that, and sort of became a income that could come in on on the side a little. And so, um, do you... Have you been pretty much working for yourself the whole time? And is it something that's just kind of grown over time? Or can you describe a little bit about what um, your particular world looks like if you're living out on the land or what that looks like? Yes, always living out on the land, always, uh, I'd say, about an hour from town, uh, growing food, um, pretty much growing all our own fruits and vegetables, um, developing a homestead, our own water systems, 
taking care of ourselves um, medically, taking care of our housing needs, building our own buildings, um, and very much on the land. So, Roby, can we go back to um, you are you are not from Humboldt, correct? You mean I'm not? Bo- I was not born here. Yeah, um, yeah. You no. came up in the '70s. Is that what? You I grew up in San Francisco, and I moved up here. Um, yes, in the late '70s. So what was it that brought you up here? The opportunity to live in the country and not have to. Um, well, I've been I'd been searching since I was a small child for a way to get to the country. And I actually thought that I was going to pursue a um, career in forestry uh, so that I could be a forest ranger and be out in the country. And um, the college um, education was a little bit too away from that. You you had to learn a lot of things that just seemed unnecessary. So I... Um, jumped at the first opportunity I had of somebody who was um, had land and said I was welcome to live there. Uh, part mm-hmm. of the, the Back to the Land movement is that... Um, yes, but I didn't realize... Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than a lot of the folks that I was living with, and I did mm-hmm. not realize that it was a Back to the Land movement. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't even know about that... Um, that idea, I just knew that I needed to get to the land and I needed to um, be out of the city. And I, I sort of, by the good graces, was able to, yeah, to be part of that phenomena, but mm-hmm. not because of anything I knew or planned. I was just mm-hmm. very lucky. What was your perception of the whole marijuana culture before you moved up here? I had Did no, you have certain? Kind I of, had no perception, no perception of marijuana culture. There was not a marijuana culture here, mm. and I actually mm. feel that I've never really been part of a marijuana culture. I've been part of a homesteading culture, mm. and the homesteading culture was fortunate enough in Humboldt County to have the marijuana as a little bit of a side gig to bring in some money. So you could afford to buy tools and and uh, stay on your land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also had a a small um, preschool, and mm-hmm. up here, so there and everybody had other things to do, and um, it, it, there wasn't like people were solely growing marijuana, and that was it. There was uh, people. Um, Quite a few of the people I knew lived with other people on the land, so there was a bit of collectives, and you know there was always several people in each group that had jobs that brought in money, and um, there was an awful lot of work spent growing food, and we certainly didn't drive new cars or even drive very much. I'd say maybe we came to town once a month. Um, but we definitely, um, and we certainly didn't have bills like we have now with phones and computers <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. We were very much um, on the land um, for for quite a while. Um, 
before I moved here, I had gotten very involved in nonviolent civil disobedience actions over nuclear issues. Mm -hmm. And I continued that when I was up here. And the um, little bit of money that I had from the marijuana also helped me to continue to be politically active. Mm. Yeah, that came up in another podcast when we were interviewing someone and she uh, was talking about that, how the, you know, the marijuana was, it It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, the, they weren't a big part of the industry. They were here because they wanted to grow food and live on the land. And, and that was, it was like, that's what sustains being able to do that and kind of, you know, pay for, pay for the bills that need to get paid. And so I thought that was such an interesting um, part of the history that, you know, that looking at it now, what it's become, but I, I love the idea that it was just this way to sustain this life and to do the things that um, people wanted to do outside of their homesteading. Um, yeah, it's kind of a fluke, really. I don't think anybody planned it. And I think it's really important to know that, that it really wasn't um, based on marijuana. People weren't here because of marijuana. They were here mm -hmm. because this land up here was had been ravaged. It was absolutely destroyed, and it was very, very, very inexpensive. I, it cost me $100 a month to buy my land. Hmm. Wow. And wow. Um, it was totally trashed from um, logging that was mm -hmm. completely outrageous. And um, I think that a lot of us had the idea that um, – it was a it was a chance to have the freedom that we'd wanted. It was a chance to be in the country, and we immediately set to trying uh, work on the land. I I spent every winter planting trees. Um, we fixed hillsides. We you know we constantly were working on the erosion that had been caused by the logging. The rivers and the creeks were choked with debris mm -hmm. and. We uh, had to learn a couple different things about that, about that, mm -hmm. and how to deal with it. But it definitely wasn't based on marijuana. Marijuana was a way to make the things that we were doing happen easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things we've been looking at a little bit, Roby, is these kind of unpacking some of the stereotypes associated with um, this world. And I know that one of the things that gets a, a lot of um, attention in the press is this idea, you know, you mentioned that when, you know, this kind of idea of redeeming the land through through homesteading, through farming, through um, caring for it, um, and marijuana just being a piece of that. But, you know, one of the prevailing um, stories out there right now is, you know, is is that, you know, the, uh, this industry has been hugely detrimental to the natural environment. Um, you know, you see uh, aerial footage and these just like, you know, really horrendous um, news stories about um, all the terrible things happening within this industry. And what I wonder from your perspective, what, what, do, you, what do you say to that? How, do, how does that sit with you? Well, I... I um feel that there are, um, as you say, horrendous things going on now. I'm very sad to see that the Humboldt 
county has allowed the um, industry to expand at the level that it is. Um, I think it's really sad for the true mom and pop growers. Um, I, I think they're, they're, they're history. And the only people who are going to make it are the real big growers. Mm. And um, I'm really, really sad about what's happened to the community in general with all the, basically, I feel like we've been invaded and taken Mm. over. Um, There's lights everywhere. Used to be quiet, used to be dark. And now there's generators running to power people's lights. People are growing year round. Um, it's just, it's just a tragedy to me. I'm, I'm really, really sad about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> I'm interested to talk more about perhaps, uh, you know, where the logging industry was, um, when you came up and then just kind of seeing this connection between what the logging industry had done and what it seems like the marijuana industry is becoming now. And, uh, just... It would take a lot more growing to do the damage that the logging industry did, believe mm-hmm. me. Um, it's I don't like what I see on Google with the marijuana at all. I don't like all the plastic, and it's just it's horrible. And people using the creeks and the rivers and the springs for the marijuana, I don't like it at all. But um, we. The land um, here, there was a law that you had to pay taxes on standing timber. And Hmm. so that was the law. And so if you had anything going for you, you would cut your timber down as quickly as possible. Hmm. That was encouraged by um, the um, forestry CDF. And... um, there was there was uh, logging. You know, you used the creeks to drag the logs down. You um, things were just completely trashed, and that was mm-hmm. in the in the sixties uh, and seventies. That um, was still going on, really mm-hmm. um, intensely, and then yeah. in the eighties when um, Max Am took over Pacific Lumber. Mm-hmm. They proceeded to do the same thing there after the enlightenment of, well, now we're going to care about the land and we're going to do logging differently. And um, we had a couple of lawsuits that resulted in really good changes to um, the forestry rules, one especially being Epic versus Johnson that uh, required the cumulative impacts to be take into account and that was not um in, nothing was enforced pl mm. ravaged five full watersheds mm. with the sheriff's support with the supervisor's support everyone's support and um so to to then turn around a few years later and they started comparing i guess it must have been what about four years ago when the water board and um uh the water quality came in and started saying that the marijuana was you know sort of the nail in the coffin and uh it was worse than logging we're we're not there where it's worse than logging yet <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's certainly it's certainly taking a ravaged area 
and mm -hmm. doing more harm when it needed healing. Right. Yeah. Well, I know that with the permitting that's happening, um, the water board does come out and there's, I wonder if there's going to, um, if there's going to be any kind of regulations on it that are maybe going to kind of put the kibosh on some of the more destructive elements well, to it. Do you think that's possible or do you think? I, I don't know. I wonder where, where is the water board? Where are they now? I've know of several properties that they've been contacted and being told, hey, this is incredible um, erosion that's going on here. People have bulldozed and made huge flats. This last winter was just trash. The sediment was amazing. Mm. And there's no one around. There's no enforcement. Uh, Humboldt County's government by opening up and saying, okay, everybody, you know, you, you can apply and then do what you're going to do till we get you. And, you know, there's 2,500 applicants and they've done 19 so far. So wow. <laughs> everyone else is just going for it. All the grows that I can see from my house um, more or less have doubled in the last couple of years. Doubled. I mean, I'm talking yeah. like four greenhouses are now 10 greenhouses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're all, oh no, we're legal. We're legal. We're legal. So, hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty sad. Are you noticing a hmm. lot more, uh, hmm. like a lot more people moving into your neighborhood and buying up the land or is it just kind of the same people just growing bigger? Oh, th these people, I don't even know who these people are. Yeah. There's hmm. people who grew up here who have, um, I guess just have the money lust. And then there's people who are coming in. There's people from other countries. Mm -hmm. um, there's um, people who are just, just here to grow marijuana and they're not involved in the community. Um, one thing that's going on that's really serious are the roads. The roads yeah. are destroyed. Yeah. And, and they are not, um, they weren't built for the traffic that they have, the heavy trucks, the trucks with trailers constantly. Mm -hmm. not, not, it's not a good situation. The reason we even want to dig into these stories, right, is because, because we see what it's become. And we know as people that have been living in Humboldt County that have, you know, had a connection to this culture um, and this way of life for, you know, for a while, we know that it wasn't always like that. And we, we are watching from the sidelines, you know, saddened by this new iteration. And so a big, big proponent, you know, so I think it, you need to sometimes acknowledge what is, um, and, and grieve, right. <laughs> this new incarnation, but you also need to speak to the beauty and the, um, the integrity that came before it, before things mm. got kind of eroded and the intention got lost. So, um, so well, I would love to hear very, just a little Yes, it was a very different community then. Um, yeah. There's still, um, it has a, a lot of great aspects to it. I live in Southern Humble and it's, um, there's still an incredible community here. It's mm. just, mm. there's an additional community now um, of people who, have a lot stronger um, desire to live a different way. But originally, um, as people, when people were here on the land and things started coming up about what we needed as a community, 
it it was a, a beautiful thing to be part of to help people organize and um, build schools and build health centers and mm-hmm. build uh, radio station our radio station um, our health center our couple of our community centers you know that that's all that was community doing it for ourselves and one thing Roby I know that you mentioned with us be- before we even um, came on tonight to talk to you in person was you sent us this beautiful email about just the kind of empowerment aspect that this plant has given you. In addition to some of the autonomy and the freedom that you've mentioned already, you you highlighted for us, you know, just some of the the efforts you've been able to to spearhead and be a part of because of um, what this this plant essentially has given you. Um, can you well, speak the, to that a little bit? Just some yeah, of the well, stuff that you've been able to do? The main freedom that the plant gave me in the form of cash was not having to work at a job hmm. far away from home where I would have to be somewhat of a wage slave and not be able to be involved in the issues I wanted to be involved in which were growing my own food and building my own building. But also, I was rejecting um, the preparation for war, mm-hmm. the building of nuclear power plants, the testing of nuclear weapons, and the continued development and building and deployment of nuclear weapons. And mm-hmm. it did feel to me then, and it still does, that we are in a very precarious position because of nuclear. And Mm. I was able to be very involved in um, actions all over the state and uh, farther because I didn't have a job and I had enough money to to do that. Now, it, it didn't take a lot of money, but I was able to, as I said, I, you know, my land wasn't very expensive and um, I had support teams. And we um, had a group from here, the Acorn Alliance, we formed that was our, our local activist group. And we went to actions all, all over. And proportionately, we had a huge group compared to say like, you would have your group from San Francisco come and there would be 20 of uh, them and there would be 40 of us. And of course we're coming from a rural area, but you know, part of that was because uh, a lot of the people here had a different mindset and, and mm-hmm. were not into war or nuclear uh, weapons or power. We were already thinking that way, but also we were, we had the freedom to be active. Mm-hmm. We weren't, in a, a job where we couldn't get away. We we had much more freedom than, than other people. I was really fortunate when I lived in San Francisco to learn from the Quakers about nonviolence and the nonviolent direct action mm-hmm. and how to apply that to uh, demonstrations and, and going to actions. And so we developed a nonviolent training collective and we offered these trainings to everybody, and um, it became a, a really big part of our community that we were really searching out and using different ways to solve our problems ourselves. 
And so then we could draw on this idea of nonviolence. And um, this was even before the um, idea of nonviolent communication started coming out. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about that kind of thing and and exploring that um, and conflict resolution, how how to work on things like that for ourselves and taking Mm -hmm. that to the wider movement. Um, And then when issues came up here, we would always jump at the opportunity to provide people with the tools and the techniques that we learned um, using nonviolent direct action for things back here at home, such as the environmental issues. There was um, when the campaign against marijuana planting first started in the Mm -hmm. 80s, it was uh, very militaristic, and they came in in helicopters and bashed people's doors down and things like that and held people mm. at gunpoint, and people were really freaked out, and I and other people were concerned that there would be a lot of, um, there, there would be a danger of um, violent confrontations because people were being invaded. So we, again, uh, formed a group called the Citizens Observation Group, and we trained people how to go out and observe the military in our backyards. And um, then we formed another group called the Civil Liberties Monitoring Project, and we documented um, with COG what what the um, campaign against marijuana planning was doing, and we... Uh, we're able to have a consent decree that put a stop to the more crazy stuff. And then um, everyone who was involved went to a nonviolence training. Mm-hmm. So we really, we really, um, I think, helped the situation. I mean, there was lots of crazy talk. You know, the helicopters were really driving people crazy. And this community uh, was... Um, very filled with a lot of, of veterans from war. And um, there's still some that are still alive, but mm-hmm. um, it it was a very dangerous situation for them. And so I think by us keeping the idea of nonviolence on the forefront, when we had the, um, the effort to save the Sinkyon wilderness, which is down here on the coast, um, their, um, Georgia Pacific owned that land and they were ravaging it. And there was, Epic was busily trying to stop it with lawsuits. And uh, we invited in some activists who could help um, with some type of direct action. And they were Earth First activists. And they were not necessarily committed to nonviolence. Mm. So, we arranged for them to um, sort of merge their activism with our nonviolent approach. And we uh, persuaded the local Earth First groups to consider it. And eventually they embraced nonviolence. Um, and we were also successful with the Sinkyon, a couple of the lawsuits out there, although too much was cut. But the same as... as um, the Pacific Lumberland, there was what some people would call a success of the Headwaters Forest, but really it was it was a disaster because so much land was lost and so much habitat was destroyed. Mm-hmm. It would take, you know, eons to mm-hmm. get back. 
but um, through the whole process of Redwood Summer, um, all through the that time, we we helped with nonviolent trainings and really had to work <laughs> strongly with people because environmentalists seem to be very passionate. <laughs> intense people who feel that it's an emergency. So coming from a more of a um, Quaker place, it was um, sometimes difficult, but but I feel really um, proud that we were able to help them with the whole nonviolence approach. I'm, I'm curious, do you see, I, I know you mentioned that, you know, there's a whole, you know, kind of hillside essentially of people that you're not very familiar with um, now that things have just kind of expanded so rapidly and um, so much where you are. But I'm, I'm curious if you, from your vantage point, can you see some degree still of community activism and awareness and involvement happening in your neighbors and the people around you or has, yes. has that as a matter of yeah. fact Thursday night I'm giving a nonviolence training to a group a community group out in Whitethorn who are part of a uh, a movement across the United States that is called <laughs> Indivis- Indivisible is, is that what this called I can't remember the name of the movement <laughs> uh, um, I'll have to look and see what that is. Sure, I have it nearby. Okay. But it's um, it's a really uh, exciting thing because it's people are are definitely getting in, involved in that, and um, I'm yeah, I'm look, definitely looking forward to to that training on Thursday night. Awesome. So yes, there are awesome. people that are active, absolutely. Yeah, and also yeah. we we. One thing that is incredible in our community is our fire departments. That's all volunteer. Yeah. And um, we have a search and rescue team that is pretty well known through the county, and that's all volunteer. And I'm, I am so proud of all those younger and some older people that work um, in that capacity. Because it's also it's it's not just fire, but um, they answer all the medical calls, and that would mean all the car accidents and any kind of medical thing. So everything that's out here, we are still actually doing for ourselves, even though the county mm-hmm. has decided that they want everyone else to grow a lot of marijuana. We are still here taking care of ourselves. Tax resistance, something that yeah. has come up in our podcast before, which I think is a really, it's just a really interesting. Thing to talk about in this scenario because uh, you know, as as one of the forms of activism that possibly people were able to participate in by growing, they have more say of where the money goes, and it seems like a lot of it really does go back into the community. Well, that's that's a really good point um, because if you look at where the money goes, over sixty uh, percent is going to the military. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're you're right that by not participating and having the taxes taken out of it, you could decide. And in fact, in the community, um, and I in the community that I'm still part of and that's still here believes in self taxation, and that is how we built all these institutions that we have by people donating and taxing themselves. 
to make the things that we wanted to make happen here. All the environmental things, all, all that was done with marijuana money. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Roby, um, and, and this is always a, you know, feel free to plead the fifth on this if you like, but, um, how did you vote on this newest measure to legalize? What, what were your feelings on that? I voted for it. I, I feel that we have an incredible responsibility to the rest of the world. Um, and specifically to Mexico. Um, I think with the incredible, um, suffering that the Mexican people have had to deal with, with the drug trade there, they desperately needed California to pave the way in legalization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't look at it as a negative for my little baby community here suffering with uh, <laughs> legalization <laughs> and, and growers. I looked at it more as, um, it was the right thing to do. I didn't think that the the actual bill was very good. There was parts of it that I really didn't like, but I mm-hmm. didn't feel that it, that um, I just did. I just felt that I would be turning my back on the situation in Mexico. How do, how would you propose to to um, this this new wave this new this new expanded community? How do we continue to move those values forward? Um, as you know, kind of the voice of commerce has gotten so loud that it threatens to drown out some of the other aspects of this, you know, this beautiful lineage. How do we continue to um, share the the um, the richness and the you know the the ethical component here? How do we continue to let that make that voice heard in all the noise of the, of all the the money here? I don't know. Do you have any good ideas? <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I, I, um, I'm really at a loss. Uh, a friend of mine just said, it's like America's here now. Mm. Mm. And it's a heartbreaker. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. it wasn't so much as that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't plan to go anywhere and most people that I know don't plan to go anywhere. So I guess we'll see what happens. We're, we're here for the ride. Of course, there's still some incredible things going on. There's still magnificent beauty all around us. Mm-hmm. Um, we still are very fortunate to have water and mountains and seashore and everything right at our door's edge. But, um, I really don't know. I um, was very, very disappointed in EPIC, Environmental Protection Information Center, Mm -hmm. for um, producing the handbook and going along with the supervisors. And um, I was very involved with the beginnings of EPIC and have sat on their board several times. And I... um, I mean, they moved out of this area and moved to Arcata, and it, you know, it's all new people, and I'm sure great activists. Um, but uh, they drank the Kool Aid, and um, hmm. I, I. So one thing that I'm trying to do is to encourage them to be involved in the um, comment period on the EIR that that Humboldt County has to do, 
Mm-hmm. They have to do an environmental impact report of the <laughs> of the uh, what do they call it? The ordinance. So mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping that Epic will uh, pull it together and act like an environmental protection organization. And um, so, yeah, that's that's one way that I hope to be involved as far as ethics go. But other than that, I don't want to be um, completely negative, but it's 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 a pretty sad situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you mm-hmm. when you said, you know, America and I'm going to I hope I'm not going to botch it, but just, you know, America is here now. I think of the people, you know, because, you know, we've made a point, Annie and I, in these these interviews to sit down with people who have really been a part of this history. You know, I have a, one teacher who um, hipped me to this idea of greenwashing, how you kind of take something that really isn't eco-friendly, it really isn't ecologically sound, it isn't really all that great or green and then you kind of just you wash it right you package it or you you know you label it just so so that it appears like oh yeah it's this wonderful eco groovy thing and I feel like that's kind of what this new wave is inside this industry you know it's like we're here where these you know big go for the money you know who cares how many generators or lights or you know all of that that you have to do but it's okay because you know we we have we have dreadlocks or um... okay because it's marijuana and marijuana makes it groovy and marijuana right. marijuana <laughs> was always the counterculture and yeah. now um, you have guys calling themselves farmers who buy soil in bags and then grow a plant in a bag inside a mm-hmm. building and say it's medicine so. Um, yeah, it's lost its way for sure. And it's a little bit glorified because, because of the marijuana, because actually marijuana is fantastic. I love it. And, Hmm. um, I love it medicinally and recreationally. And I think that, um, it's kind of given, um, I don't know, people, uh, the feeling that they're counterculture just because they're associated with it. Um, yeah. And it's it's not it's it's beyond going over the edge. It's I mean the the plastic the sea of plastic is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I have my next door neighbor has just put up oh I don't know half mile of fence that you can't see through, um, you know metal fence on the road where I've walked for for almost forty years and now I walk along and it's a huge metal fence. And yeah. that's my view. I don't know what the poor little animals are doing. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, and, and this is all legal. So, and, and I don't even, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with um, raising your consciousness, which is where the marijuana actually kind of came from, was you, you, you tuned out, turned on, you know, mm-hmm. and... Um, that's not happening. Not that people aren't still doing that, but it's certainly not <laughs> happening with this industrial growth thing. Right. Mm. It's really becoming a commodity now. It, it, it is a commodity. And that's the other thing that's so crazy is I don't even see how anybody is going to uh, be able to make it um, 
so that's what I, why I said I didn't think the mom and pops were going to make it because they're not going to be able to sell their marijuana. So much growing. Well, do you think, I mean, I've heard this theory that, uh, that, you know, there's going to be kind of the, you know, like the artisanal growers, right? The There's going to be the industrial marijuana, but then, you know, I've heard some, some small time people say, oh, but we're still, you know, we're going to grow like really good stuff. People are going to want this, you know, kind of like a, like a good wine, I guess. Um, yeah. it'll, be, it'll be interesting Perfect. to see if that can happen. <laughs> good luck to them. Yeah. I, 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 I do. I'm sincere. I, I do wish them good luck. I've heard that for years. I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm not involved in the marijuana industry and I don't, I'm not dependent on it for money in any way. So um, that's something that's, I feel fortunate about. I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be dependent on it um, because you'd have to, you'd have to face that you have to get big. So I'm 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 curious then, Roby. What are what are your specific plans for moving forward? Because obviously, it sounds like you know this working with this plant has given you um, opportunity and um, insight, and just it carved out a really beautiful path for you. But it's something that you have moved away from in this new iteration. So I'm I'm just curious, just for you personally, what what does the future hold? And um, how do you want to maybe carry some of the the lessons and the legacy of your time, you know, with this plant and living on the land? How do you how do you well, want I'm still, to Yeah. I'm still living on the land. I still have a garden. Yeah. I still grow lots of uh fruit and vegetables and um a little bit of marijuana for myself. Um but I don't um and I don't have plans to leave and I'm still a uh, uh, politically active, and I don't have plans to stop that. Um, I'm wondering if my political action is going to take on a little bit more of um, issues are, that are against the marijuana industry. So that's kind of a possibility, I think. Yeah. I actually, I actually had a fantasy of getting a, of of stopping a fuel truck just today, watching it go down the road, and I thought, I'm going to go f***ing blockade that <laughs> right now. And I'm not going to let him through. I'm just not going to let him through. And mm-hmm. um, and then I <clears throat> I decided not to do it, but it's um, it's coming. I, I'm I'm there's there's actions that are going <laughs> to yeah. So this brings me to a question about, um, you know, just kind of the the uniqueness of Humboldt, not just the the marijuana culture, um, you know, but that is becoming such a big part of it. But like we've already established that helped people find their way here or, or you know, live here the way they wanted to. Do you think there really is, like, is there something special about this community, this place? Um, and if so, do you think that it, it can be sustained through all of this or is it um, kind of crucial to the whole small town back to the land lifestyle? Well, nothing ever stays the same anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing stayed the same, it would die. 
So everything changes, and and I do think it's a very special community, but I think there's probably special communities everywhere. Have you ever um, read a book called The Ecology of Hope? No. Sounds... Well, wow. um, it, um, it was written some time back, and it kind of chronicled, maybe it was, I don't know, 12, 15 different projects all across the country where what people were learning was that for the longevity and the health and the sustainability of their community, they needed to work together and have the land be the priority and the community and the local government be involved together. And they were able to make um, dramatic and lasting changes. Um, so anyway, there mm-hmm. I think there are special communities all over, special people all over. And um, I feel very fortunate to have been here when I was. And I have a, li- a little bit of sadness to see it change, but but nothing does stay the same. And I think the one of the most beautiful things about our community was our tolerance. Mm-hmm. You could do anything you wanted here, of course, as long as you weren't, you know, hurting somebody or, or um, you could, if you want to be a reggae musician, then you could do that. You could grow dreads and make the most beautiful reggae music. Or if you wanted to be an artist, you could do that. Or if you wanted to be a musician, I started a band and I was in a band for four years. That's crazy. You know, I mean, <laughs> things all these different things that we were able to do and our creative energy. Um, I know people who actually became scientists on their own, or they became a lawyer in their little cabin over the computer. Um, Mm. People have been able to do all kinds of incredible things. And um, I, I just um, think that everyone's differences were very tolerated and there was there was not um the the tolerance here was very very high and in the long run that maybe is our was our downfall because we hmm. tolerated these these situations as it started to change well yeah he wants to kind of grow a little bit more than he should you know or or this person is doing this or this and we were i think the tolerance um in the long run, maybe was um, something that we should have examined a little bit more. What would you say to this new wave of people who maybe don't even understand the the impact of the choices that they're making? Um, well, I think we all have to look at the impacts that we make on all the things that we do. And that's all I would ask is that we stop and look at those impacts. That's all you can ask, and people have to make their own way and their own decisions. You've had so you've yeah. had so much so much wisdom, and I have really enjoyed um, also hearing this history and this the side to it. And I lo- I love all the activism. Yeah, well, Roby, we just want to thank you again, um, just for for your time and all your insights and everything, and just really giving us just this beautiful portrait of of your life and the culture that you've been such a, a vibrant part of. So, thank you.
let me pour you a drink. Upon encountering the invitation of the river, the question that always seems to linger is, who am I? Who are any of us? Who up and proclaimed me the king, the queen, the messenger, the water bearer, the prophet, the seer, the priestess, the architect, the clown, the sage, the siren, the white hot bearer of a sacred flame? Who am I to shine forth? Who am I to carry the water? Who am I to hold the cup? It's a gift that came into my open palms at a moment when I was ready to receive. And the only answer that comes back to me is who am I not? Who are we not? When people are thirsty and you hold some water in your hand, you offer up a drink. When the world is hungry for some deep soul nourishment that you've been gifted, you dig into your bag of bread and offer up a bite. You don't hold back. You don't retreat to the corner and stay silent while the tribe goes hungry or the thirst persists, complaining that what you have to bring will not suffice or lacks the right amount of salt or yeast or sweetener. If the people in your midst are thirsty and the water you carry is clean and sweet, you do not worry whether there be enough to go around or if it will be to another's liking or whether it is yours to give because your feet have touched the river and you know there's much, much more to go around. Because you've been granted access to a deep and nourishing stream and the only way to offer proper homage is to fill your humble vessel and bring it back to the village. You give thanks to the river and draw the world a little hand-scribbled map. You point them to the source and you pour your tribe a drink. We are four episodes in and would love to hear some feedback. You can rate us on iTunes or find us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what we're doing and want to keep up with future episodes in which we speak to an herbalist and medicine maker or get the inside story from a farmer, you can subscribe to Mend Life at the Seams on iTunes. More is yet to come. Thanks for being here.